0: Now, I'll remind you that um, somewhere, and we don't know exactly when, maybe right after the Jerusalem Council, maybe after the. Who knows? We have this incident recorded by Paul in the book, in his letter to the Galatians, chapter 2, where Peter was in Antioch. And uh, Peter saw the Jews and the Gentiles having a grand old time in the Wednesday night uh, potluck suppers. Mm and he joined uh, the bash and uh, one of those weeks come some people from Jerusalem whether sent officially or not we do not know but they had they either claimed or they had some particular association with James and uh, when Peter saw them he realized what uh, what that meant? All of a sudden, it dawned on him that what was taking place in Antioch really was going well beyond what the Jerusalem Council had decided. You see, the Jerusalem Council, in effect, acknowledged that the situation in Jerusalem is different from the Jerusalem from the situation in Antioch, and that. Um, the Jews may continue to practice their Judaism the Gentiles need not be required to practice Judaism just as long as they show some sensitivity to things that are offensive to them but the Jerusalem Council <coughs> did not address the difficult question what will we do if, the, if these two principles if you will come into conflict what the Christians in Antioch were facing was should we or shouldn't we have fellowship with the Gentiles particularly at the table the problem is this the Jews if they are indeed allowed to continue to practice their Judaism that would mean preserving the dietary laws And at least for some, although there's some debate about this as well, but I I don't think there can be any doubt that, at least for some Jews, what that meant, one of the things it meant was you cannot sit at the table with a Gentile. So, you see, that seems to be one of the principles that a Jew may may preserve his Judaism by uh, observing that law. But by doing that you seem to be violating the other principle and that is of receiving the gentiles as part of God's people even though they haven't submitted themselves to Judaism the council did not address that question and the church of Antioch perhaps led by Paul decided that uh, they were going to go a step further and say the unity that we have in Christ is more important than preserving these ethnic uh, items of identity and Peter not surprisingly in view of his own history and the experiences he had undergone was quite happy to be part of that but he knew (laughs) perfectly well now when these people came from Jerusalem and they saw him eating that that would be interpreted by them as apostasy, as abandoning his his Jewishness. And so now he retreats. And um, some of the other Jews, when they see that, realize the implications, also retreat. And Paul has a royal fit. Because It would be one thing for Peter out of his own convictions not to partake at all at table with the Gentiles and I think Paul wouldn't have had a problem with that at least a different kind of problem but once Paul has shown I mean once that Peter by his own behavior has shown that that is not a problem of his own personal conviction for him to withdraw from fellowship with the Gentiles on account of the fear of what these people are going to say was in effect to tell these Gentile Christians sorry folks but you really are second class and uh, if you really want to be you know part of uh, the real stuff you are going to have to become Jews. That's that's the only logical conclusion that can be drawn from that kind of behavior. Um, boy, wish we had a videotape of what happened on that occasion. I don't know whether you folks have seen that series on Peter and Paul that uh, boy, first aired on TV about... Um, still in California, so 14, 15 years ago. And uh, there's this marvelous, uh, you know, the bay between Paul and Peter, and and the conversation gets a little more heated. And um, uh, it's rather well done. You know, who knows how how it actually took place. But um, uh, it's well done in this sense that somebody watching that scene would not have had would not have been able to react um say well obviously you see peter is being a jerk or obviously paul is being the jerk or, or obviously it, you you really got a sense of this is a difficult tension and the and the right uh point of view is not a black and white issue when you think of all the circumstances and uh, as as the debate continues uh, peter uh begins to you know, he gets a little defensive and he obviously you know paul you're not acting very uh you know uh, lovingly or whatever and uh, things get gets hotter and hotter and finally uh, uh peter turns his back and starts moving and, and the Paul the he's this simulator this simulator and um it's it's quite uh, quite dramatic actually we don't know how this thing ended you know and, and there's a lot of speculation Uh, The the most common viewpoint is that um, if Paul had, quote-unquote, won the debate, he would have told us. But the fact that he doesn't say anything indicates that things were, you know, ended up in a very, very sour note. And that, as a matter of fact, uh, probably Paul was the one who lost. And there are a number of uh, articles and books in the past few years that, that really develop a whole history and theology of early Christianity and on the basis of the assumption that at that point, Paul really, it isn't just that he lost an argument, it's that he lost his prestige, his prestige and his uh, his authority in terms of, and, and then he was isolated. And the rest of his ministry uh, takes on a different hue altogether. Some interesting stuff going on, very, very speculative, of course. But um, somewhere, in between the Jerusalem Council and uh, Paul's third journey, all of this is going on. This debate in Antioch, these people—maybe they're part of the group that went up to that went to Antioch uh, at this time, who were also evangelizing in a, in a way that was, that was antithetical to Paul. All of that to tell you that in the third journey, as Paul is visiting once again those southern churches. Um, he must have warned them. You know, there are people around who are trying to undermine what I'm doing here. And uh, you need to know that uh, the gospel that I have taught you is the true gospel. And uh, I don't care who comes here, you know. Even if it's an angel from heaven preaching something else, don't you believe it? so Paul leaves the churches feeling that things are okay goes to Ephesus and I don't know how long he was in Ephesus before he gets this report that a group of Judaizers maybe people he knows uh, have now gone to these churches in South Galatia and in a relatively short period of time they have really affected the life of the churches and some among the Gentiles at least some of them have decided to submit to Judaism and uh, you know you ask yourself well how could this have happened you know so quickly even Paul says I marvel that you have so quickly turned away well You've got to do all you can to appreciate that particularly within that historical context, things might not have been as clear to people as they are to us now. And that the uh, Judaizing message would have been a lot more persuasive than uh, we might think. And, you know, can, you can just imagine what's going on here. Here come the Judaizers and say, Hey, you know, it's wonderful to see these uh, Christian brethren and uh, how happy we are to meet you, and so on and so forth. And, um, and oh, by the way, uh, when are you going to um, you know, be circumcised and, and uh, adopt? Judaism, it's well, you know, Paul told us that that really wasn't necessary. It's well, you know, you need to appreciate that as uh, true believers that you need to follow the uh, commandments that God has given us. And um, after all, you know, God doesn't change his mind, and if he gave the commandments, those things must be obeyed. And Chris said, Well, I realize that, but. Uh, You know, Paul made it very clear to us that uh, you can just believe in Christ and that's all that's necessary. And uh, Judea said, well, you know, Abraham certainly believed in Christ and believed in God and that's how he was justified. But uh, God gave him the sign of circumcision and and, uh, surely you want to be children of Abraham, don't you? So you must do what uh, what Abraham did because it's what God told him to do. Yeah, but you see, Paul told us, so Paul, Paul, Paul. <laughs> Let me tell you a couple of things about Paul. You do know, don't you, that he wasn't one of the disciples of Jesus. You really ought to pay attention to those who, you know, were under the teaching of Jesus and who became the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, the pillars of the church, James and Peter and John. Uh, let me tell you some things about this Paul. He talks out of both sides of his mouth. Haven't you heard him say, I am a Jew to the Jews and a Gentile to the Gentiles? Uh, why does he tell you that you, know, you should be circumcised and as you know perfectly well, he preaches circumcision when it you know, fits him, uh, suits him, as Timothy you know you know all about that but that's not all do you don't you realize that Paul whatever right or authority he had he had it simply because he had to submit himself to those apostles in Jerusalem and that he had to receive their approval and that um, there was a very important meeting where there was an agreement and uh, Paul is now breaking that agreement and as as if that were not enough Paul had the gall to accuse Peter Peter the Prince of the Apostles the one to whom Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom and he publicly accused him of things and there was this big debate and and, uh, Paul was very very insensitive you see Paul is really uh, the type of person who gets A certain kind of approval from a group in this case the jerusalem apostles and then he decides that he's going to take control and uh, he really moves away from the very things that he was taught and comes up with a uh, a message that cannot be trusted And this whole approach, you see, eventually worked. (laughs) Uh, And I haven't even started. Paul is very upset because he had established these churches, he had visited them several times, and now he has to write this letter and uh, he is clearly, uh, emotionally, I mean, you can just see him trembling. Okay, somebody else had better do this. So he dictates. And when he gets to the very end, says, okay, i got to write my thing and then look at these letters. Because uh, we, we have real problems here. Real problems. And um, it is not... You know, given that whole context, it is not surprising that uh, Galatians is the one letter where, um, after the salutation, instead of saying "I thank God for all that you are" or "I praise God for this and the other," he says, "I am amazed." And uh, you know, then. Anything that's unpredictable, that's what's really powerful, you see. And when you're expecting one word and you get exactly the you know, diametrically opposite word, uh, that ought to have some kind of an impact on you. And the letter to the Galatians is filled with this tension of people whom Paul still regards as, you know, they're his brethren. And yet at the same time, they're already slipping. And he's, you know, he speaks about you are. Uh, changing loyalties. You're right in the process of changing loyalties and there are three or four patches in the letter that sound as though he thinks they've already apostatized and at the same time he's not really giving up on them. Uh, it's, a, it's a remarkable letter and um, you see you put together the Jerusalem Council on the one hand and this document on the other And there you have uh, the whole fundamental essence of what the early church is all about. And we cannot make very good sense about that first generation of the Christian church unless somehow we try... I mean, we really need to shed a lot of our assumptions here because we, probably all of us here, at least most are Gentiles, And we have never had to. We we, we have never been in the context of uh, of being or having it ingrained upon our, you know, deepest uh, consciousness uh, that to serve God is to be a Jew. It's as simple as that. And uh, of course, you know, we must believe in Jesus, but not at the expense of rejecting what God has taught us. And I don't want to say that, that uh, nothing else was going on in the Church, lots of other things were going on in the Church, but, but the one defining issue was, how in the world do we make sense out of the Gentiles being brought in? What does that really mean? What does it mean for them as Gentiles? What does it mean for us as Jews? What does it mean for the character of the Church? And you see, as you continue the uh, the story of Paul, you realize that this doesn't end here by any stretch of the imagination because uh, the next thing that Paul has to deal with is uh, you know, the Corinthians. And we don't know uh, how... There is some relationship here. I mean, there are a lot of people in Corinth that are opposing Paul. And he has to take this trip from Ephesus to Corinth to try to solve the problem, and he's unable to solve it. And he goes back to Ephesus in despair and he finally takes the uh, uh, recourse to writing apparently we're reconstructing here again uh, some flaming memo uh, hand delivered by Titus basically saying all right I've had it I've been as patient as anybody could be but this is the end. And uh, if you don't repent, you're gone. Now, whatever that means, I don't know. It's going to zap them or what, I don't know. But it was obviously a very threatening thing. And uh, Paul was, I think, genuinely frightened about what the consequences would be. And he told Titus, I'll meet you in Troas on your way back he goes to Troas and Titus isn't there and Paul cannot sleep and he keeps going and uh, sure enough he meets Titus up in Philippi whatever and uh, he gets his news the church has repented there's still a bunch out there giving you trouble but the church has finally acknowledged uh, that you are indeed an apostle of Christ and you're teaching them the truth and Paul writes uh, Second Corinthians from up there in Macedonia, and uh, you know that's the passage. I mean, that's the letter where you have the passage in, in chapters ten through thirteen, where he addresses that recalcitrant group that's still giving him troubles. And in chapter eleven, he starts listing, uh, you know, his own qualifications. Uh, if you want qualifications, I can give them to you. And I've been beaten up so many times, and I've been in. Uh, uh, these kinds of dangers many times and uh, what was drowned many times and this horrible list of things he's for the cause of Christ and last item as if that were not enough I'll tell you the toughest one of all the care of the churches that I carry with me uh, and you can just you know, see him thinking about the Galatians and the Corinthians and the trouble they've given him he keeps going to Corinth, and apparently, he spends three months in Corinth, and uh, things have calmed down. Uh, it's a low in the middle of the storm. And from Corinth, he writes his letter to the Romans. And you need to understand that Romans uh, has a particular Function there within that whole context. You know, we tend to think of the Epistle to the Romans as post-systematic theology. And, and indeed, in comparison with these other letters, it does seem to be so much more <coughs> um, elaborate and, and carefully worked out and, and uh, doctrinally uh, detailed. But um, it's not something that that arises out of you know, he got a letter from somebody in the Sunday school board and says, we need a textbook of theology. Could you do this for us? Uh, we're talking about Paul facing a very difficult situation because what he's been doing during his this third journey, one of the things he's been doing is raising an offering for the Gentiles. And this offering for the Gentiles has a lot more significance to it than helping poor people this is a crucial event uh, in his attempt to to prevent the mother Jewish Church in Jerusalem and the Gentile Church to separate and he's been collecting this money he's ready to take it to Jerusalem and he's saying things himself, what am I going to say to these people I'm going to get a lot of Christians out there mad at me because I have this easy gospel that doesn't require people to submit to the law. And uh, I am convinced <coughs> that when he writes a letter to the Romans, that is sort of a rehearsal of what he was going to say to the Jewish church in Jerusalem. And you have this um, most instructive statement in in Romans fifteen, you remember as he comes to the end of that passage. <coughs> and he says uh, I've been wanting to go to Rome but I haven't been able to because I wanted to do this and the other but now that there's no more place for me to work I've worked myself out of a job And since I've been longing for many years to see you and plan to go there but I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Saints there for Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Saints in Jerusalem they were pleased to do it and indeed they owe it uh, the Saints in Jerusalem they were pleased to do it and indeed they owe it to them for if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews spiritual blessings they owe it to the Jews to share with them the material blessings so after I have completed this task and I made sure that they have received this fruit I will go to Spain visit in my way verse 30 I urge you brothers by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me this is a struggle that he's involved in and there are two requests one that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea that's reasonable but the second request that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there, and, and in that little clause, that whole history of the early church is, is encapsulated. Uh, there is this tremendously important meeting that he's facing, bringing that offering, and uh, hoping to be able to preserve the unity of the church, and. Uh, See, the letter to the Galatians is most easily understood, I think, as a systematic answer to the objections that the Judaizers have been been raising against Paul during uh, all these years. Galatians and Romans really relate in that way. Galatians is the urgent letter, uh, dealing with problems, uh, you know, and this here's an emergency situation. He continues to deal with these things during the third journey. Now, while he's in Corinth, he sits down, has a couple of months to reflect on these things uh, before things get hot again. And he writes this very careful argumentation, where point by point he starts responding to all the objections that Judaizers have about the injustice of God, and about uh, Abraham's pattern and about uh, what are you going to do if, uh, if if you preach this gospel. People are simply going to say, Oh, what a good world this is! You know, uh, I love to sin and God loves to forgive sin. Uh, and you're going to lead people in immorality. And there's the argument about how can your gospel be true if, if God's own people have not accepted it. Uh, something has to change. Uh, that's uh, what's going on. And that's also why when you go through the Epistle to the Galatians it is a a fatal mistake to say I cannot use Romans to help me understand Galatians you do have to take each letter in its own integrity uh, and you cannot flatten out the distinctives of each book of the New Testament or the post letter specifically but what Paul says to the Romans is very much part of the whole context of Paul's thinking. And uh, you've got to take that into account as part of, of the whole framework of, uh, of the um, thinking and the life that uh, lies there behind the letter to the Galatians. That's why we're going to be paying a lot of attention to some of these parallels. Wanting to be careful not to read Romans into Galatians, if you will, or any other kind of of, uh, uh, use of parallels that doesn't do justice to the, as I said, the integrity of each letter, but still uh, trying to make sense of of Paul in the context of his whole teaching. All right, um, just think about these things. Uh, Many of them we'll come back to in one way or another. We'll have the quiz next time. I'll say a little bit about textual criticism and maybe get started on a few other things. Okay, I know that uh, the main reason you're paying tuition in this seminary is to be able to do what we're about to do right now. Um, Why don't you open your Greek text to Galatians 1. Uh, What's in front of you is the... um, a photocopy of uh, a plate of Papyrus 46. <coughs> you will remember that Papyrus 46 is the earliest um, manuscript of the Pauline letters, and um, it is of uh, interest for a whole variety of reasons. This is an actual plate from the, uh, from the manuscript. Um, I, I don't know the exact color of it if you were looking at it live. Uh, the pieces that I have seen, pieces of papyrus, aren't quite this dark. But it's that, you know, that general hue. And um, you can see a little bit better from this, from the plate, the, um, the fragment, fragmented character of some of the leaves. And that's why you, you get all kinds of gaps sometimes in the uh, textual evidence. But what I want to do for just a few minutes is to collate uh, Papyrus 46. Collate means that you uh, come up with a record of any differences between whatever it is you're collating against some kind of standard or some kind of base. And uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, it has been customary to do collation against the Textus Receptus, and not because the Textus Receptus is necessarily a better text, but partly because it has functioned as a standard text for so many centuries that when you're recording variations, particularly uh, if you're working with the uh, later manuscripts, it's a lot less work Why? Most of the manuscripts agree, in general, with the Texas Receptors, so you have fewer variations. If you are producing a a detailed uh, textual apparatus, when you're collating, when you're giving information in the apparatus over against the Texas Receptors, you're going to have a much briefer apparatus, because so many of the manuscripts are going to agree so much of the time with that base te- text, which is the text Receptus. Another reason for doing it that way is that um, it is generally easier to detect genetic relationships among the manuscripts when you collate them against the Texas Receptus. Now, why that should be? Um, I don't want to get into that question right now. The problem of genealogical relationships is um, uh, important, and and we may address it in a couple of different contexts, but that's not my primary interest here. I just suffice it to say that um, if you take some other text, such as we're going to do right now, we're going to take the UBS text and use that as our base for collation, and uh, using that text as our base, the um, the patterns among the manuscripts don't show up as easily or as clearly or whatever as if as it would if we were collating against the Texas Receptus. So in any case, uh, what we want to do is to look very carefully at what you have here uh, to the Galatians, and I know that the um, it's, it's pretty difficult to read, but uh, we're not going to do a lot of it just to get a sense, a little bit of a sense for what's involved here and then we'll try to draw some general kinds of inferences. Um, Pardon me? Yes, pars 46. So as you see about the middle of the page, you have the title, Pros Galatas. And um, what what you want to do here is look very carefully at uh, both texts and try to catch any any differences. So um, now this is the Unshall style, and, and you're not as familiar with it as you are with the modern uh, uh, type. But it doesn't take too long to uh, get a sense for it. The very first word is Paulos. Um, the Upsilon, of course, looks like a Y. And the uh, Sigma looks like a C. All right. That's the the normal uh, way of uh, of um, writing a sigma. Paulos apostolos. Okay. Do you see that? No. Yes. And then ook. No problem so far. No differences. Nothing. Up. With the elish, this is a part with the elition of the omicron. Anthropon. Okay, so far. Ude. And go to the next line, D anthropu. You notice that the uh, p is a lot larger than the omicron that follows. That's just a. Uh, uh, do you you know you don't have a. Uh, Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We have plenty here. here. <coughs> uh, D-anthropu, Allah, OK, see the Allah. Di is a little difficult to make out, but it's there. Now you look at the next three letters. They're Iota, Eta, looks like an H as a capital, and Upsilon. And that, of course, is one of the abbreviations, it's an abbreviation of, of name Jesus. And you have the horizontal stroke on top to, uh, to help you out with that. Then Christu, again, abbreviated, Hero Rho, Upsilon. Chi, okay the again abbreviated theta upsilon. now you can just very difficult to make out the patras there but uh, it is then go to the next line to a gay okay out Ek. Necron, you're, you're to the end of verse 1, and so far, no uh, no variations. Kai, Hoy, you can barely read that, I can see. Sun, Emoy, I know that you can't quite make that out from from this copy, but uh, it is there. Uh, <laughs> even even in the plate it's very difficult to make out but it's uh, you know it's nothing else that it could be. Pantes okay. adelphoi you can you can just barely make out the phi taice Ecclesi. eyes you cannot really make out the last sigma there for eclesi eyes. GALA, uh, again it's very difficult to see the last two letters, but GALATIAS on the next line, GALATIAS. CHARIS, now here's a slight variation. Uh, Okay, UPSILON, MU, and that is an EPSILON, IOTA, NU. Humain. Now, this is a very common orthographic variation, uh, and usually referred to as an ethicism, where the um, because the sound of the yot and the sound of the uh, diphthong a had pretty much merged, uh, and there, you know, much earlier than this, uh, many scribes would not um, uh, be totally consistent in the way in which they would spell the. Um, this form and a few others like it. This would go as a simple orthographic uh, variation of, of no significance except simply to uh, keep in mind a, partic- a, a, uh, uh, a characteristic of, of this particular scribe. Kai a reine a pa. And then there is the U, uh, it's an abbreviation, I know you cannot, you really cannot see that very well. The next word is patros. But now, you go to the next line, and you do find a more significant variation. Your text says, uh, patros heimon kai kuriu, yesu too. So, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This text, as you can see, says, uh, God our Father, theopatros kai... So instead of um, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is God the Father or God Father and our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. So here you have a transposition um, as you compare Ptyr 46 with the UBS text. Now for the purposes of what we're doing right now, we're assuming, let, let's assume that this text in front of you, I mean, the uh, the UBS fourth edition or third, whatever, or the Nestle Island 26th or 27th, uh, is the original. Now, we know perfectly well that you know we cannot be quite that confident uh, and that every decision that they have made is not necessarily uh, infallible here. But if we assume that, that what you have in this printed text corresponds to the original, then what you're seeing in Papyrus 46 would count as, as a deviation from the autograph. And uh, in, in this case, it almost certainly is. I mean, it's not a, uh, a totally, um, it's not, you cannot come to an absolute conclusion about this particular transposition, but uh, that's the way that we might look at it. And then I keep going to dantas who gave Heauton himself and now you cannot really see it very well your your text says huper but clearly that's not huper and uh if you if you go to the uh plate it's a little clearer that it is peri and here you have another substantive variation this is not a transposition It is a, what some people call substitution, that is a one-to-one kind of equivalence between two prepositions that are, a kind of overlap in meaning. And uh, your text has chosen per as the original and Peri as the scribal change. Uh, This is a little bit more controversial and uh, there are reasons for that. Well, um, we could keep going. All I wanted to do is give you a five or 10 minute exposure to something that um, most people don't do. Why? Because it's been done. I mean, every you know, all these important manuscripts have been collated. There are a number of, of uh, medieval manuscripts, particularly they have not yet been fully collated. But if people for whom this is their job and profession can do it a lot better than I can, uh, and they've done it, why should I bother doing this sort of thing? And um, well, Um, if you have a particular quirk in your personality that might attract you to do this, that would be one reason. Uh, The other reason is that actually actually it's a set of reasons. When you spend a significant amount of time uh, fiddling with a manuscript like this, you really do get a completely different perspective on what textual criticism is all about, on what scribes did, on, on what what is the reality out there. And uh, it provides, I think, a base of, of knowledge and a perspective that uh, can be really, really helpful uh, whenever you come uh, across a textual decision that you have to make. Uh, it also gives you a, a nice perspective when you're looking at the arguments that scholars might use in favor of one position or position or another, or when more general statements are made about uh, the character of these variations in the manuscripts. Another reason which gets mixed up with that one is that there is a, uh, an indirect, sometimes direct, but usually indirect exegetical payoff and the uh, the point here is that as you get some exposure to the way in which the scribes were copying these manuscripts, and, and perhaps you become a little bit more sensitive to the fact that even the act of copying manuscripts was done within a hermeneutical context. Uh, conscious, semi-conscious, sometimes unconscious. There's a particular way of reading the text that may affect the way in which a scribe uh, might copy it either for, as I said, either deliberately or, or simply because of, of an unconscious, uh, you know, effect on on what uh, he's been exposed to as he's been working through the text. And um, I am convinced that, um, you know, some of those scholars in the past who have spent a little bit of time with um, paleography and and, uh, and textual criticism um, have a heightened sense. Of certain kinds of exegetical problems. Uh, don't forget that um, even, and this is a key issue because most of us were too busy anyway and uh, uh, haven't, you know, uh, understandably haven't spent the time that it takes to uh, uh, hone technical skills of this sort. The only time that we're concerned about textual variations is when there are significant textual variations, and uh, the the UBS text, you know, uh, talk about a strength being a weakness. the The strength of the UBS text is that it doesn't bother you with lots of textual variations that have no bearing, really, on how you would translate the text, because you know the vast majority of textual variations. Do not, uh, are not reflected, cannot be reflected in translation because they're relatively unimportant, or they're uh, variants that are uh, so weakly supported that they don't really have a claim at all to be part of the original text, and so they're not included in the, in the UBS text. And so uh, it's very convenient, it's very helpful, it keeps you focused on, on those kinds of issues, but I said the strength is the weakness because now it encourages even more. Uh, not paying attention to other textual variations which even though they may not be important directly with respect to uh, the original text in a particular verse they are very important Mm -hmm. as providing the the, the broader picture of what goes on textually and if you try to make text critical decisions only on the basis of, of, of very selective exposure to those problems, you get a, a terribly fragmented idea of what's, what's been going on. Uh, that's why I encourage you, particularly if you're interested in, in uh, doing advanced work in, in New Testament, uh, to try to work as much as possible with this edition that gives you lots more variance. Uh, and I think it gives you a, 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 um, a fuller sense of what is out there but the truth is that even this edition is extremely selective you know uh i think it's good enough for most purposes and so on but uh, you need to be aware of the fact now in the case of the papyri the nestle allen text tries to give you just about everything except the obvious orthographic or you know clearly careless blunders of the scribe but from many other manuscripts they don't bother uh, giving you uh, a lot of interesting uh, variants uh, simply because there's only so much room and even this much seems like uh, overdoing it to uh, most people anyway. Uh, that's why you know, if, if you have a little bit more interest, go to Tischendorf's 8th edition and you see this packed uh, apparatus uh, giving you a lot more information. But even he is not exhaustive and besides he did his work before a lot of the uh, newer discoveries were made the uh, Institute for textual criticism in Munster that uh, the Allens had have uh, well, Kurt Allen died last year but his wife Barbara is now the director and um, they are of course involved in producing a a, a major edition which um, uh, you know, they keep making progress. They keep producing all these volumes of statistics and tables and this and the other. And um, we're getting close to the point where they might might actually give us the exhaustive edition of the Catholic epistles, uh, which is what they have been working on for 30, 40 years. Anyway. Um, now, uh, if you read the little off-print that uh, I gave you last time. Uh, You saw that I had, didn't have anything to do on my sabbaticals and I started collating uh, (laughs) uh, manuscripts. And I had done uh, about four for this uh, particular article, but um, I fooled around with a few more, about 10, actually nine, plus the majority text using the uh, the edition by uh, Hodges and Farstad which is not exactly the, uh, uh, the Texas Receptus, but it gives you a pretty good idea of what the typical manuscript in the Middle Ages would have been. And um, I want to... Um, what I did... <coughs> I had done some of this work um, back in the early 80s in connection with Philippians, and then I expanded a little bit. When I came back to it, uh, computers were a little bit more... Uh, popular, and I started entering the information in uh, in a little database program. And uh, I want to just give you an example of some of the stuff that I have been doing, uh, just so that you know what can be done and what cannot be done. But um, I'm just going to give you the whole thing here and, and start passing it. Now, first of all, look at the page, which um, you know, in this landscape format. This is a sequential uh, record of uh, my collation. By sequential, I mean, you know, verse by verse, of Papyrus 46. And first of all, in the first column, you have the reference. G stands for Galatians, 01 for chapter one, 03 for verse three and zero two for the second word in that verse. Follow that? This is the one that's uh, sideways. Then uh, the lemma, which is the usual word used to uh, describe the, the unit of text in your base text against which you're contrasting whatever variant you have found. So, humin, which we saw already. And the variant in this uh, manuscript is humin, but with the uh, diphthong, and so this itacistic spelling. Next column, TYP is, stands for type. What type of, um, of variation, uh, or what type of word are we talking about? And N-O was my little abbreviation for any kind of nominal form, nouns, pronouns, that sort of thing. So who mean being a pronoun, I put it there, nominal. S-U-B is the, the sub type P-N pronoun. Uh, what kind of change? S stands for spelling. And the I stands for an ethicistic spelling involving the iota. Uh, I had to come, up to come up with this because I wanted something very short that it wouldn't take me a lot of time to to type, but that would help me discriminate completely through every kind of a variation. Then I had a whole range of um, of other things, some of which may prove to be totally useless. But um, S L means short or long, uh, and if you go to the fourth line, you see S1. That means that this particular variation is shorter by one word. That's what it means. VID is, you know, remember when in the apparatus sometimes the reading is not certain and they give you VID. You have to look at the manuscript because it's not clear whether we're reading it correctly or not. So I felt like I needed to uh, indicate that. Uh, the others, SNG means whether it's a singular reading, that is, if this particular variation is found only in this manuscript that I could tell from looking at the apparatus of the additions, then I would mark that with, with a Y, yes. If it could be an error attributed to uh, an error of the eye or of the ear or some kind of doctrinal change, DOC, STY stands for style, H-A-R for a harmonistic, uh, and then C-O-R in case uh, there was a correction by a later scribe or whatever and then some miscellaneous uh, notes. So you can see then the, the, the second one is a chapter, Galatians 1 verse 3, words 8, 9, and 10. And the variant is a transposition of the second word comes first and the third word one. That's a com- common way of, uh, of doing it. The type PH is a phrase, um, and so on, I don't want to go through the whole thing because it's it's not worth it, but just to give you an idea of what I was trying to do here, which I had never seen done uh, in detail, and I felt that many times when people would make uh, statements or draw conclusions about uh, variations, that they were drawing those conclusions without taking into account the type of variation involved. So that if you say, well, you know, this particular, um, these two manuscripts have agreements 40% of the time, but these other two only 20% of the time. I felt, and I still feel, that that kind of information is very ambiguous. I want to know agreement in what kinds of variations. And sure enough, once you have this in the computer, in a database program, and I was using you know, a PC file, which is cheap, but very efficient, fast, little uh, program. Then you can play around with it any way you want to, and so, and I did this for those 10 manuscripts, or 9 plus majority text. So if you look at the next, um, look at the one that says conjunctions grouped by manuscript, um, here it, it's a little different. MS indicates which manuscript am I talking about. Now 01 is the normal, uh, is the uh, regular uh, designation of Codex Sinaiticus. Zero uh, two 02 of Alexandrina, 03 is of Vaticanus, and so on. So for Sinaiticus, what I could do is just ask the, uh, the database program, give me all of the um, variations involving conjunctions and group them by manuscript. And so here are all the uh, uh, variations that you have for Sinaiticus. Um, and you can see, for example, as you go to the last few columns, the type is F-U, means a function word. And the subtype see C-O always conjunction, so all of them are uh, belonging in those two categories. But then you have one addition, then about six equivalences, that's substitutions, one f- instead of another, and the rest are omissions. And that gives you a sense of a profile of each manuscript Uh, You know, any way you ask it for it, I mean, you can ask for all kinds of stupid things just to show off what you can do, right? Um, The next one, ask the database to group them according to change. Uh, Now, still dealing with conjunctions, but now um, if you look to uh, to the right, the column CHG change, AD, that is addition, and all of, all of them are additions in that first grouping. And that again is very, very helpful.